Welcome to Reframing Our Stories, the podcast. This podcast is about provocative conversations with beautiful thinkers about topics that matter and the stories that have helped them reframe their lives. Grab something cozy or put on your walking shoes and let's reframe. When I first started teaching sexuality education, I started in the church community. It was important to me to help church communities learn how to address sexuality without shame. One of the first people I was introduced to was Dr. Kate Ott. She at the time had written her first book, Sex and Faith, Talking with Your Child from Birth to Adolescence. I absolutely loved this book and shared it every time I spoke to parents. Kate has a way of reaching many people in her writing She is well-researched and speaks in a caring and approachable way that often gives space for wonder and even disagreement. In her new book, Sex, Tech, and Faith, Christian Ethics in a Digital Age, she gets to the heart of the matter of how we humans interact in an artificial space as sexual beings. What are the consequences of this and where are the tangible positives? Dr. Kate Ott is a feminist, Christian, social ethicist, addressing the formation of moral communities with specializations in technology, sexuality, youth and young adults, pedagogy, and professional ethics. She is the Jerry L. and Mary Joy Stead Professor of Christian Social Ethics at Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary in Evanston, Illinois, where she serves as the director of the Stead Center on Ethics and Values. Kate, I am so glad that you are here today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be in conversation with you. So I've been reading your book on sex, tech, and faith, and there's just an enormous amount that I feel like we're going to talk about and cover today. (laughs) Thank you for writing this book. The amount of research I know that you did, it's astounding to me, the amount of research that's in this book. And So really, we could just give it to you and say, just talk the entire time. (laughs) But for me, I was like, as a parent, the more um, my kids get older and the more that tech enters their life, especially in the social capacity, the more I'm a little bit terrified. So I'm wondering from you, how... It ter- so tech terrifies me, right, in a number of ways. And I know that it's already changing relationships from how I see teaching the kids in the classroom. So what do you see in store for our future around tech with our kids and the relationships? Yeah, well, I mean, as my approach is with anything, especially with sexuality, but also digital technology, is to try to get us away from the two poles, either right. being <laughs> my terrifying, terrifying reaction. <laughs> You're like, let's bring terrified. it back to the middle. <laughs> <laughs> let's come back. Um, terrified or like in magical awe, right? right? Where somehow we can't understand how it works. Right. So I want us to pull back from both those kind of opposing places where we feel like we don't have any control right. or um, yeah, just don't have any ability to actually engage it. So that is why I tried to do this deep dive into, you know, the crazy world of how all these things are built and how they're used in order to help the reader just understand the basics 
Mm-hmm. And I think that from a parenting perspective is extremely important. Yeah. So, you know, I have not been a huge fan of being on variety of social media and things like that. I have to for my job, but I also wanted to get on it and test it out and see how it worked and play Mm -hmm. with it so that I could talk with my kids about it. Yeah. So that I could talk with the teens that I work with. Mm -hmm. So I, I think the first kind of starting point I would say is let's not avoid any of it because we already know that when we say don't do it, it tends to be one of the things wow. people want to try out. Yeah. So I, I think like, let me accompany you. Let's ask questions about how it works. And I think that's really important for teens and for young kids today, because what we know is that many of them are very tech uh, submerged. I don't know, like, mm-hmm. you know, they're just in this world of tech, but they're not savvy. Like, yeah. you know, the other day, my son who like only uses digital technology for everything he does came inside and was like the bluetooth in the car doesn't work and we were like okay well did you try to like reset it did you we like ran through three things he was like no yeah he doesn't actually know how it works it's just you know their experience of technology is it's there it turns on you use it yeah and that's how technology is built it is built to make us not see it until it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And so I want us to ask questions, pay attention, like, how does it work? And I think when we're specifically talking about sexuality and technology, you're right. It's for generations to come. It's changing where we meet, yeah. how we define privacy, what counts as me, you know, yes. is like yeah. the avatar I create online that might have a different gender racial identity, totally like animal embodiment. Like, is that me? And am I interacting with you if you have switched up all these features of who you are? Mm -hmm. Um, It's also changing a little bit about like who or what makes decisions. So I think a lot about the ways in which, you know, if we look at the research, say on Instagram and the way young women feel they have to portray themselves, well, it is culturally imbued, but it, it's also the options that the technology is giving us mm-hmm. that shape how we interact. So it's not a blank slate. It's already formulating that for us. And then lastly, you know, it's also going to change, you know, pun intended, like how we get off, right? <laughs> like <laughs> It creates this all new space of kind of, uh, you know, sexual behaviors and desire and, and resources and material. Yeah. Well, you made me feel a little bit better about one thing because I mean, right now I don't have, I don't allow my children to have social media at this point. I don't feel like they emotionally can interact with it. You know what I mean? And we're waiting for that. However, um, I have this, I have social media on my phone. And so they will sit with me and sometimes if I'm scrolling through Facebook, I'll be like, oh, notice this. Like I talked about them, like, or yeah. if I'm on Instagram and then, um, you know, all of their friends and stuff are on TikTok and all the kids at school, you know, but I don't allow them to have it. And so I have it. And so I'll like, like the other day, each of them, one of them would take time with me for five minutes or 10 minutes and we would go through TikTok and look at TikTok together. 
um, and notice things that came up. And then the other one had their own other personal time with me, <laughs> personal TikTok time, <laughs> because I do recognize the need of this is the culture they're living in. And this is where the social engagement happens. Mm-hmm. But at this current moment, I don't feel like they're ready, but they, I want to introduce it to them and give them those kind of questions to think about of, oh, look at how quick people are responding to this with, do you think that's kind the way they're speaking to one another? Um, you know, why do you think everyone is looking this particular way? And what I really love is when they come up with their own questions of like, why is that happening? And who's, why are they deciding to post videos of anything? So that's, I think, positive, right? When we're able to engage with them in that way to have them have some critical thinking of what is happening. Yeah, and that, that from my perspective is exactly what the book is trying to help the reader do is to say, okay, what are my values? What do I really care about? Mm-hmm. How do I seek out honesty and trustworthiness and mutuality in my relationships, in my use of technology? So I don't just dive in and let the technology or the way in which the technology talks about sexuality guide me. I let my values guide my interaction with it. Yeah. Um, and I think it's really important because that recognizes that the technology is designed in a particular way and it's shaping us yeah. as much as we might shape it through our engagement. Mm-hmm. And I think too many times we just see it as this tool that someone picks up and, and it doesn't have this social shaping effect on us. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I love I love the idea of having personal TikTok talk <laughs> where you know you're really just sitting around and talking. And I often, you know, I often when I go into, you know, a youth group setting to lead a conversation, you know, the first five, ten minutes before stuff starts, everybody's just walking in and kind of on their phones. And mm-hmm. I think we too often see that as people being absent from one another. But you're right. Like that is when, when a teenager pulls up their phone and goes on social media, for the most part, they're actually engaging with another 10, 20, 50, hundred people. Right. Like that is where they're meeting people. And they're also seeing the interaction of their friends and the commentary there. Mm-hmm. And that can be overwhelming, but it can also be really great in developing networks for young people. And so I don't want to take that away. What I want to do is go in with them in Mm -hmm. that engagement. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what are other ways then that you can recommend for people to do that? Right. Because I also recognize, you know, sometimes, you know, parents have access to their kids' social media account, but there's times too when kids have fake media accounts, you know, so what are your suggestions and how we can be proactive and how we can also continuously uh, learn about all the new apps and different things that are coming up, right? Yeah. I, I mean, I think the first place to start is just be forgiving with yourself. Like mm-hmm. there is so much, you're never going to catch up with all of it. Mm-hmm. And so I would just recommend finding the moment. And this is the same as, you know, that we talk about with sexuality education, that they're teachable moments. They're not lectures. They're, they're not one-time talks, mm-hmm. but we're looking for those moments. So it might be when you're looking at your social media, 
-hmm. and you sort of say, wow, I'm really noticing this. What does it look like for you and your friend? Mm. The other thing that I found really helpful for my kids who are now young adults was to encourage them to make sure that on all of their accounts, they had friends and family members who were cooler than us as parents. <laughs> um, so that, cooler than you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, That's you need awesome. like, you know, the youngest aunt or cousin yeah. or, you know, the older sibling, that kind of thing. Like you, you need those folks or like family friends, you know, the, the babysitter who's now in her twenties. Yeah. Um, and so my kids always had those people as part of their networks. Mm. Um, I let them have accounts that I was not on. Um, and that I couldn't, couldn't see, mm -hmm. um, just because I felt like it expressed a level of trust, but yeah. also helped them see why community is important. Mm. And, and that it's not always going to be me as the parent who tells you what to do or how to understand something, right? Like yeah. if the cool, if the cool cousin or something says, ah, you know, you might not want to post that picture. Like you're applying to college soon. Yeah. It has a lot more weight than if I say it. Um, so, so I, I think it was those kinds of network building, um, the finding times where I would notice something. And then, I mean, obviously for me, it's a little easier because I'm already researching this stuff. So mm -hmm. I would just pop in with conversations like, Hey, this new study came out about like online pornography use. And what do you mm. think about that? Mm. Um, you know, of course they're uncomfortable. They don't really want to talk about it, but I've gotten a little bit of information out. I've opened the door to the conversation mm -hmm. and, you know, it, it helps little by little. Um, now I think if you're a parent who, you know, you've got a busy life, a busy job, you're not going to go research all the new findings on, right. on sexuality and technology. In that regard, I really think the faith values that you go back to that is the work that I do is most important mm -hmm. so anytime mm -hmm. you can talk about like hey I saw this online today or this news story came up I just wonder if that person is really valuing themselves or other people in the image of God mm. like that small conversation can plant a seed for for much later conversations yeah. or yeah. So I think about another aspect, right? Because especially during the pandemic, we had a lot more obviously engagement online. And for many kids, it was during the height of their social kind of experience and life and um, starting to get interested in dating and things like that. And I remember before any of this happened, I had been at a workshop and one of the presenters said, we are entering a time where our, our children's first sexual experience that they partake in will be virtual. And so thinking about what those kind of conversations would be like, you know, so how does this change our conversations with our children? And what do you make of that? Yeah, I, I think this is probably 15 years ago now. I was at a sexuality education workshop and we were asked to name sexual behaviors mm -hmm. and someone raised their hand and said sexting. And there were all these people in the room who were like, 
not a sexual behavior. I'm like, just writing a note to someone. Um, and the person was like, no, like all the young people I work with either do this or they know about it or they have questions about it. It's a sexual behavior. They are expressing themselves sexually to someone else mm -hmm. in this behavioral mode. And, you know, that was one of the moments early on that I was like, I need to learn way more <laughs> yeah. about this. Um, so part of what I think is that, you know, from a Christian perspective in the work that I do, we, we talk a lot about being spiritually embodied people, that, that we are not just our bodies, but mm -hmm. that, you know, we have souls, we have minds, it's all integrated. I'm at the point where I think we are digital embodied spiritual beings mm -hmm. that there's no way to disentangle like what researchers would call digitality. Mm -hmm. Our world itself is integrated that way. Mm -hmm. And, you know, from walking down the street, there's multiple cameras that are already taking your picture that show your location your phone is constantly updating who, you know, where you are, who you are, what you might be interested in. So there's ways in which we're not even thinking about how we are digitally understood and constructed in the world. Mm -hmm. And I think that's true about our sexuality as well. Mm -hmm. When we think about sexuality, not just as behaviors we engage in, like, do I send a sext or not? Mm -hmm. But how do I connect with someone? How do I create a relationship? I don't have any relationships that are not also mediated by technology. Yeah. That includes my students, my parents, my partner, mm -hmm. um, everyone I know. I communicate both face-to-face -face and, or I guess I should say in the flesh, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> as well as digitally, because we're talking face-to-face -face, um, right. digitally. Right. So... So I, I don't yet know how much that will change about our relationships. I just know it's already true. And so maybe we need to have more conversations about the ways in which we communicate differently mm -hmm. instead of defaulting to, I think, past ideas like virtual isn't real or... Right that's you know an online relationship is fake or just a starter thing mm -hmm. um I think we really need to get to a place where we recognize that this is this is all of the same cloth of how we create relationships yeah and it's just of different quality mm -hmm. and so how do we help young people understand and, and start to talk about that and the meaning that it has for them. Mm -hmm. And I think about too, you know, especially during this time where we were texting multiple people every day, you know, and even if it was just a sentence or two, it's like the amount of people now that we have access to is more than ever before. And I think it also, in some sense, changes our relationship because sometimes we can be with each other in a more frequent way, even if it's just typed. 
words or, you know, a FaceTime. And then I think about, however, the way we utilize the typed word and the way that we utilize then um, GIFs and emojis and things like that as a way to express ourselves. Um, and then how how do we navigate those times when the, the message is lost, you know, of what we're trying to say and people take in it differently? You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like there's so much, I think, that of conversations I feel like we've started to have but need to take down de- need to have in a much more in-depth way that your kind of book, you know, your book touches upon in terms of, you know, the messages we are trying to convey about ourselves in this digital platform. How are we hearing one another or not? Um, So what are your thoughts around that? Well, I mean, I think we can be misunderstood, you know, face-to-face in the flesh as, as well as online. Um, what I think is important is for us to know that those are different forms of communication. Mm-hmm. And so one of the main aspects I talk about, especially with digital communication, is it's questions of how am I representing myself mm-hmm. in ways that maybe I can change up and play with that I can't do when, you know, when I'm offline. Yeah. And so how do we uh, not saying any of them are good or bad um, necessarily, mm-hmm. but why do we make those choices? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how how do I pick an avatar that represents me? Mm-hmm. And you know, what what does it look like? What am I playing with? What is the software allowing me to play with? How do I understand that presentation? I don't think that that's a lot different than like what clothes I choose to wear and how it presents who I am. It's a different form. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think just like we don't have a lot of good conversations about what we choose to wear or don't wear and how it represents us. um, We kind of default into certain groups. I think we just, we need to have more conversations and skill building around what that means as I'm communicating in a relationship. Mm -hmm. So the, the sort of, visual growth of communication with digital technology is interesting to me because it does add a whole nother layer of how young people communicate with one another. And they're often very savvy about, you know, why they choose certain ways to do it or, Mm -hmm. you know, how something becomes a trend in terms of communication or like a whole, you know, I could look at an emoji and I think it means something, but it means something totally different to a different set of people. Um, So what I do think we lack is the ability to discern when it's best to move from one form of communication to another. Right. And I think this is just as true of adults, you know, like I've had multiple times. true of everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Where you're like, you know what, it'd be Universal. easier to just pick up the phone than write this five-page email to the person. Um, but I think that also comes in parenting, right? Mm-hmm. That comes in those moments where 
you know, I might be up in my office and it's like literally easier for me to text my own child in my home and be like, hey, what do you want for dinner? Than it is for me to walk down the stairs, go over, like that. So um, I, just having conversations about that. Why do we do it? How do you make those choices? What does it represent about us? Um, again, I, I'm not sure any of us know where it's going. Yeah. And so it's best that we start engaging in the conversations now. Mm -hmm. That's the truth. I think it's also, I mean, the whole thing that you, I feel keep really talking about is intentionality, right? Being intentional of, of knowing what your values are. <laughs> like sometimes maybe we're still not at that point of recognizing our values and then being able to, to, yeah, intentional in this fact of who am I in this platform? How am I engaging it? Do I recognize the way it engages me as well, right? And just being cognizant of these things. Um, so you have been teaching a lot and have been engaging in many conversations with people around these digital platforms and the ethics around it. So what is some of the main things that you have come to find that people really uh, talk about in these, in these moments with you? The reason I wrote the book was because of the conversations I was having in workshops with parents and teens, especially, but also in my seminary classrooms with folks going into ministry, mm -hmm. folks already leading churches and the kinds of questions they were being asked. One of my favorite um, theologians, ethicists, is Marcella Althaus-Reed, and she does a lot of her work by saying that um, sexual stories are the starting point mm -hmm. for how, how we should theologize, for how we should think about sexual theologies and sexual ethics. So reframing our stories, you're like right in line. <laughs> I'm raising my arms for people who don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, the whole and, connection, just, yeah. I'm so glad, right? You and I are like, we see things very similar anyway, but just the fact of, yes, our sexual stories influence our spiritual stories beyond belief, like the whole thing. Yeah. Anyway, continue. <laughs> And, and I mean, she sort of radically says these are, this is where we find the sacred. And I think for many people who still feel sexuality is a very taboo subject yeah. that, um, and or people who have experienced abuse and violence in their sexuality to say that's, that is one of the places where we need to find the sacred can be difficult. Oh yeah. And yet Althaus Reed is saying, no, that's exactly the place we need to find it because we need to also know where the brokenness is happening. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it was really important to listen to people's questions, what they're currently struggling with, what they'd like to hear more information on to be informed. Mm -hmm. So I turned to researchers who were either doing first person interviews in order to share those interviews in the book to novels. I mean, a lot of digital technology is also you know, it, our imagination around it is influenced by science fiction. Mm. So, you know, when you think of Netflix, yeah. Black Mirror or Westworld and sex robots, uh, you know, I've, I've integrated a lot of those stories and narratives into the book mm -hmm. to help us see the way 
these kinds of things play out in people's lives. Um, the only place that I used uh, sort of real firsthand journalistic stories was in chapter three on sexual violence, because I thought it was really important for the reader to recognize that this isn't a theoretical topic, that mm -hmm. this isn't some technology we're going to design in 10 years, but these are real technologies that are affecting people's lives in extremely negative ways. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's just regular everyday technology that people are misusing and abusing right. for that purpose. But for me, I, you know, I also think it would have been really boring just to hear all about how tech is designed and like, you know, centuries of sexual theology and ethics. <laughs> um, I, I think we, we actually understand our sexuality much better when we tell stories about it. Mm -hmm. When we hear from one another, not just what happened, but how it made us feel yeah. and what we wanna know in exploring that. And so I, you know, the ways in which um, women and non-binary folks and, and LGBTQ plus folks use digital technology related to their sexuality is very different mm -hmm. um, in the research than what we see for cisgender heterosexual males. Um, it's one, because industries are created differently for those different groups. Mm -hmm. um, but often there are empowering and educational ways that women are trying to use this technology that you know, maybe a young trans person is just looking for other people who have similar experiences or expressions when they live in a place where it seems like no one else around them has that. Right. Um, so I, I also think the stories help us not paint sex tech with a broad brush, that it's only this or it's all bad, yeah. um, but that it's really nuanced. Mm -hmm. Well, and that kind of, I just thought of like a multiple different things of different ways, like communities, you know, utilize tech. And, you know, I've been, I'm listening to this book right now and it was talking, you know, about sex work and different things like that and how, you know, a lot of times people are in our country like to criminalize sex work, but for some, for some individuals, it's their, it's their pathway to freedom, you know? It's their way to make money to get out of an abusive relationship. It's their way of um, also providing for those who don't get to have maybe, um, you know, those experiences of meeting someone at a bar and having a human interaction sexually, you know, so it's a providing a service for those who may not get to experience that. And, and yeah, so it is. It's a play. It's a meeting place for many different, different people and different populations. That's interesting, though, too, in the way that you know how they choose to design things, like you talked about. Can you speak more to that? Yeah, I've been toying with this idea that I want to write something on the fact that I think the like the capitalist gender stereotype industry of sex tech catering to this mythic, which I do think it's mythic, this mythic 
you know, male, cisgender, heterosexual experience of sex Mm -hmm. is killing sex tech. Like, Mm. I actually think, I mean, if it's an industry that's trying to make money, they have like 50% of the population plus more than that in terms of other gender identity and sexual orientations that they could cater to Mm -hmm. if they would get out of their kind of 1940s, 50s version of like playboy hustler ideas about pornography. And um, I mean, even if you look at the way that sex dolls and eventually sex robots are being created, you know, yeah, there's a few male dolls, there's a couple of trans dolls, but the majority are these like Oh, Barbie doll esque, <laughs> crazy sexualized oh, yeah. versions of women. Mm-hmm. Um, and even the voices, you know, they say, oh, well, the AI is genderless. Mm-hmm. If you listen to your Alexa or Siri or any of those, yes, you can change the voices. Mm-hmm. But the vast majority of people interact with an artificial intelligence that sounds like a 1950s feminized secretary. Yeah. And that is just re reifying mm-hmm. our ideas about gender and sexuality. And when people say to me, oh, well, that's, that's not actually about like sexuality or that's just about gender. It's about both. Mm-hmm. And those are sexuality education messages that we get all day long oh, from the yes. world around us. So yes. yeah, if we could start a revolution yes. around sex tech, <laughs> This would be one of them would be to like really diversify the the gender and sexual expressions of artificial intelligence and of various kinds of technologies. But what you said about, um, you know, a really nuanced view of, of sex work, but also what some people might lump into sex work or think of it as separate in terms of online pornography, a lot of the digital technologies have actually diversified and democratized folks um, ownership and production in those areas. So, you know, there's, there's also, you know, going to be gender stereotypical and racist kinds of ableist productions on something like fans only, Mm -hmm. but fans only as a site where, you know, an individual becomes a direct producer and distributor of their own uh, sexually explicit material or erotica you know, I, as a person, don't have to go through a production company, you know, a lot of what, you know, pornography run by sort of very cisgender male expectations, ownership of money, control of that. It's really, so that aspect of digital technology is one of the examples of how some of this is already changing. Yeah. So we've talked a little bit, then I already have brought it up. So let's let's just go ahead and go into sex robots. <laughs> and I know for many, whenever um, I can see, you know, people have always asked me, well, what's going to be the next topic and what's going to come up and what are we going to be talking about in 10 years? And for sure, this element of sex robots, I think, is on that list. Like we already have people in other countries who are marrying their avatars and things like this. And so, um, and for me too, like you had said, I was able to see some of these sex styles up close and personal and be able to feel them and, you know, 
know what they are like. And all of them were large breasts, thin waists, like very much. And we <laughs> meeting that criteria. And I said, and we were like, so where are the male dolls? Where are the dolls that have an actual other, you know, body type and things like that. And again, we also, I also know that they're utilized for many different things. One of the sweetest stories I've heard was someone buying a sex doll that looked like his sister to put in the living room with his mother who had dementia and thought who had died, his sister had died. And so the mother was talking to this doll like it was her daughter. So they can play multiple roles. But I just want to hear from you, from your research and stuff, what... Uh, where, how are they playing a role for us? Yeah. I, well, I do want to say, I think, I think in 10 years, probably the main thing we're going to be talking about is like sexual relationships, meetups, experiences in virtual reality and virtual reality is getting much better by um, both including haptic, you know, so sort of touch sensory response Uh Elon Musk and all other tech things is working on neural networks. And so we might one day have things like are portrayed on Black Mirror. Um, but they're also including, trying to include multiple senses. So the touch, but also maybe VR universes where our devices also re release sense, you know, and, and, and so we have sound and sight wow. and touch and smell. And so that's really gonna kind of encompass um, a variety of aspects of sexuality that we thought were kind of really one dimensional in a virtual reality universe. So that's probably that's further along. Yeah. Yeah. Further along oh my development. Gosh. Right. Um, okay. And there is there is actually a company, I believe it's out of Japan, that runs sexuality education seminars for folks in virtual reality. Um, and you also then use like sex tech devices, so haptic touch devices at home that like give you feedback as you're going through these sexuality education um, experiences. Mm -hmm. So it, it helps people with sexual dysfunction sure. and, you know, relationship issues. So I, I also don't want to make it seem like it's just an entertainment industry, but it is also right. educational. Nice. Well, when it comes to sex robots, so they are, the imagination we have of sex robots, that does not exist yet. I mean, literally what exists is a sex doll that does not move. Mm -hmm. with like a voice box in it. So imagine, you know, your Google dot or whatever, <laughs> your Google, whatever, is <laughs> like in the head of, of the thing. And maybe the lips move, maybe they move like well enough for you to be tricked a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, but the AI in these dolls will remember certain things. So mm -hmm. it does remember, you know, maybe what your answer was to some past conversations, just like, you know, my Alexa remembers to give me the news at 7 a.m. in the morning every day. Um, most of the individuals who use sex dolls or whatever this version eventually of a sex robot will be, they don't mistake them for humans, right? And in fact, they actually want those interactions because they don't wanna be interacting with a human around that. Mm. Like there's just a way in which, you know, for a lot of the folks who choose this, human interactions around sexuality are really difficult. Mm -hmm. And so for that reason, you had sort of asked me to think about what are some of the pros or cons of sex robots as we go right. forward. Right. 
So if I think about the pros, I mean, there are educational uses, um, you know, for someone who's experiencing sexual dysfunction or really has difficulty in terms of communication. Um, you know, there are studies that, that show, um, so Real, Do Real Dolls X is um, one of the main companies that's kind of further ahead than everybody else in design. They did a study, a university partnered with them and it wasn't even a full doll. It was kind of like just the head of the doll with the voice box and AI. And they asked young heterosexual men to interact with these dolls for like a month or so. And then the young men reported feeling more confident when talking with young women, um, feeling more able to communicate, uh, you know, sort of a two-way mutual conversation, yeah. asking questions, learning things about the other person. So, you know, the ways in which maybe digital technology is reducing that kind of social interaction, these robots are creating that interaction for folks who maybe feel like that's not something they can do. They have a lot of social anxiety around it. Yeah. Um, I also think, you know, as you noted, a lot of these dolls are, it's, it's an aspect of companionship yeah. that, you know, and for better or worse, our society is extremely judgmental around sexuality, around looks, <laughs> you know, around communication skills. Oh, and so, gosh. you know, for someone who feels dismissed or unloved or, you know, for someone who's experiencing a disability, physical or mental, mm -hmm. that this kind of interaction might give them a level of companionship. You know, I, I'm not quick to dismiss that. Right. Um, I think that's a gift for those kinds of folks who need that and want that. Mm -hmm. um, but there's also some folks who will talk about like, okay, we're also going to end up with issues of like gender disparities in certain countries that had, you know, maybe way more male births. And um, it's a kind of heterosexist argument, but it does work in some of those countries. And that is the higher use of, of sex dolls and robots. Mm -hmm. um, you know, other people talk about maybe lowering birth rates and the way that this provides companionship and sexual relationships when we have a climate crisis. Those are kind of, you know, Fascinating. arguments yeah. I'm not sure we can <laughs> fully say lead to like, social goods that I would, um, you know, say, okay, well then everyone should partner with a robot so right. we could have this. Um, yeah, Cause yeah. you have to factor in the making of the robots and the materials and things like that. But you know, the cons we've already kind of addressed. Mm -hmm. At this point, these designs are so gender stereotypical yeah. that I think they're reinforcing very negative gendered understandings, especially of women. But if you do look at the male dolls, I mean, the male dolls all have six packs and, you know, mm -hmm. fairly large penises and other things that like are not realistic for most males. Um, the, the trans dolls that are created, um, you know, they, they try to balance a fine line, but there's such a diversity in people's trans experience that I do think it also falls in a stereotypical kind of depiction. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the interaction isn't mutual. We could, we could say it's reciprocal in the sense that AI does respond to you and it does ask something of you, mm -hmm. but it's not mutual in the sense that like, you know, you and I have a conversation and I don't know what's coming next. Right. And we're going to learn differently together. And 
I truly believe that like healthy experiences of sexuality and intimacy should be mutual, right. not just reciprocal. Right. Um, and, you know, there's also the fact that maybe for someone who's using this for companionship and socialization, it might benefit them, but it might also further their isolation from, from other types of, of social interaction. I want to say that has not been true in sex doll communities. Um, so that hasn't quite borne itself out, but on a large scale use of them, I'm not, not sure whether it would or wouldn't. Yeah, because one would wonder if we get to a level of comfort, right, with, because part of the issue is with real people, we have to be vulnerable. There is the risk of disagreement. There's this risk of conflict. Um, and so you don't necessarily have that, right, with a sex doll. So it's being able to, to navigate that territory and maybe in a way where I think that's interesting where they where they had that ability to talk to some of those young men, you know, that can, I see that as like a tool of, you know, role play, right? So mm -hmm. how do we then engage this in the real life? Like I do role play all the time when I'm teaching. That's very fascinating. Just, I don't know. <laughs> I'm just taking this all in. <laughs> this is cool. So how do you feel then, you know, with all things, there are intersectionalities and things. So do you see tech affecting our relationship with God? Yeah, certainly. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of folks who, you know, might say, well, the creation of these digital technologies is moving us further away mm -hmm. from God, or we're using it to try to become God. Um, and I think those things can be true. It's all about how we engage the technology. But we've been using technologies in how we understand God and how we form faith communities for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, I really love the work of John Dyer. He wrote a book called From the Garden to the City. Mm -hmm. And um, he just did an updated version of it. But if anyone needs like or wants a kind of 101, how to think about the role of technology in the Christian story from, you know, thinking through scripture all the way to present day, it's, it's an excellent, excellent text. Mm -hmm. um, but even when we think about language or how writing language down in the printing press shifted mm -hmm. our Christian communities, yeah. where we saw who had authority and who had the ability to interpret scripture, right? I think digital mediums change that as well. Mm -hmm. um, I, I want us to when we engage digital technologies, to not let it, to not let it disappear as we talked about really early in this conversation. So when I pick up my phone, for example, I try to think about the minerals, the earth, the dirt, the sweat that like went into creating this thing. Hmm. And then like all the people who are there in that, in that <laughs> teeny little device, right? That it connects me to. All the ideas and thoughts. Um, I think if we see technology that way, mm -hmm. it's almost impossible to not recognize where where our faith plays a role in that. Mm -hmm. um, I also think there's a way in which um, you know 
technology itself is also a really good metaphor for how we think, especially digital technology, maybe for some of the ways we understand God that we haven't been able to explain before. Mm. You know, the fact that that little tiny device can connect me to all these people in ways that I never kind of knew before, or the quick way I can reach out and like literally change someone's day just by a kind word that I didn't have access to before. I feel like that's the way the Holy Spirit works in our lives. Mm -hmm. And we need to talk about that more because otherwise we do, we could lose that connection. We could lose the place of, of God in that. We could lose the place of our communities. So for example, um, when I looked at uh, dating apps, I kind of thought, is there anything new to say about like dating apps? Like doesn't everybody use them or everyone hates them, but still uses them. Um, But what I really realized was that so many people meet people online and there's a way in which you could do it where your community is never part Mm -hmm. of that connection. Right. So I want to remind people that God's always part of that connection, whether we see it or not from my Christian perspective, Mm -hmm. um, God's playing a role in that. And so what would it be like to always kind of have that in the back of your mind Mm -hmm. to be like, even if I'm on this dating app by myself, like God's part of what I'm trying to do in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that calls us to justice. It calls us to honesty and mutuality. Um, but I also want us to say, I don't know God and I can't have a relationship with God without a community. Mm-hmm. Like I know God because I know God in the faces of the people around me, in the actions of how, how they live in the world. Um, that makes God evident to me. Mm-hmm. And so even if I'm online, those actions, those interactions are also, or should also be evidence of God at work in our lives. And if they're not, then we need to think about how we're engaging and how we change that. Yeah. It's when you were talking, it's like I just had this picture of like all these particles. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, dispersing and because oftentimes, right, the world of tech feels really big. And it's like how and I'm always like, I don't even know how someone designed these things where we, I can see you in, you know, in Illinois, you see me here. How is it that um, I have stuff living in the cloud? You know, <laughs> how does this stuff work, right? It's beyond my comprehension. And I also believe oftentimes God is beyond my comprehension. And the way that God works is pretty infinite and radical. And so it's just, it's so fascinating the way that we you we come into relationship with the things that are beyond sometimes our comprehension and how do we engage with those things and are we going to use these things for good or negative right because people often utilize a relationship with god as a negative thing mm-hmm. to harm others you know as a way of, of proving a point or things like this so it's just something to think about, (laughs) you know, it's just like this dance of particles of (laughs) knowing and unknowing and us getting to, to form that sort of, how do I want to live in community and be in relationship with one another? Mm -hmm. So in the book, you also have a section 
that is a youth study guide, which is very helpful. Do you want to speak about that and why you put that in? Yes. So the the book in general, I would say, is written for an adult audience. Mm-hmm. Um, if if I were a parent, I would read it first before I gave it to my teenager or no. I mean, definitely young adults can pick it up and it would be great for them. But um, I would definitely read it before I gave it to my teenager. The reason that I created the study guide at the end was, I, I mean, originally this whole thing came out of working with teenagers and their parents in faith communities and having them ask me questions. And so I didn't want to just write a text just for the adults. Mm-hmm. So what I did was each, so if you're a youth leader or a parent, you know, you can read this text and then for each chapter, there's a way to have conversations, let's call it. Um, I mean, it could be an hour or two hour workshop if you're into that kind of thing. <laughs> um, but it really, it integrates prayer. It integrates creative kind of ethical responses to these issues. And it highlights what are kind of, what are the main points? Like, what would I love everyone, not just the teenagers, but what would I love everyone to leave this book knowing Mm-hmm. related to digital literacy, sexual literacy, and how we create our own ethics mm-hmm. around those two things. So I really hope that, um, you know, folks in, in faith communities will pick it up and use it and, you know, do some study sessions based on it. Mm-hmm. I know all the youth I work with have these questions, so I can't imagine the ones that the rest of the world is working with don't have them. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's also there's a lot of references in that section too, so I'm hopefully resourcing and skill building folks who are using this text as well. Well, I just find the book to be really thought. I mean, it's thought provoking. You always write books that are thought provoking, <laughs> and I just really appreciate them. And you know, and it makes us think the you know around the ethics of digital you know, engagement and how do we want to show up in that space and then the ways it can enhance relationships and the way that it can, you know, sometimes put our relationships in, in uh, compromising, you know, positions and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're at the point to where our time is almost up already. So I ask all of my guests what story they are reframing today. I, my initial response is that I'm like reframing so many stories. So how do I focus? Um, no, I hope that this text is reframing the story that someone else has to tell us what our sexual ethic is as the world is radically changing with mm-hmm. digital technology. Mm-hmm. What I want the reader to know is that in your community, surrounded with love and support, you can discern what, how you understand your sexuality and the kind of ethic you want to live out mm-hmm. with regard to that sexuality in these digital environments. Mm-hmm. Don't be terrified. Don't be in awe. <laughs> Just, you know, yeah. take on that rule. Say, I'm an ethicist mm-hmm. and I care about healthy sexual relationships and whether those are online or offline or somewhere in the particle mix of those two things, 
no, I have a role to play in decision-making and bringing my values to that. Yeah, that's great. I think that's, these are the conversations, right, to have. And that's why I think it's great you included that youth portion in the book, because I feel oftentimes I just think about how we are quick to give them these devices here with not the conversation of the vastness of the world that they're going to enter and then how to interact with that world as them themselves and then encountering things that just don't make sense to them, you know, and it's just really big. It's a really big thing. And I think it's really important work. And I think it's something as adults too, that we have to recognize how it can take, take so much of our time away from us. You know, there's times where we just live in that space and are forgetting the world around us. Um, But also how it's the way like, uh, you know, Again, it's how I get, how I do my business. It's how I do my job. And so learning how to form a healthy relationship within these these spaces that we have now find ourselves living in continuously. So can you tell us where, I know people are going to, you know, want to get this book now that they hear about it and also want to know more about you. So can you tell us where people can find you? Yes. So Sex, Tech, and Faith is from Erdman's Press, but like all books, you can get it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, any e-platform that you like. Uh, And to find out more about the book itself, but also about the work I do, you can go to kateott.org. And um, it's my website. I write on tech, but I'm not very good at tech, so it's not super flashy. (laughs) (laughs) But you can go there and at least find good information and links um, to that text and to others. Um, You know, if you're interested in more of the technology side, I have a separate book on Christian ethics and digital society or more on the parenting and sexuality side. I have the sex plus faith talking to your children from birth to adolescence text as well. Awesome. Well, thank you for joining us, Kate. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me.